1: I'm back with Father Tim Grumbach in studio. If you are not familiar with Father Tim Grumbach, the truth of the matter is I probably shouldn't say this, but I hear from listeners all the time, our favorite guest here on Trending is Father Tim whether I am out of the state in the state. Father Tim Grumbach is an associate pastor at St. Augustine Parish in the beautiful Los Angeles in Southern California. We're enjoying quite nice weather right now, not to boast or anything, depending on where you're at. And he is involved in so many minist- ministry from Life Team to various organizations for young people who are doing work. What's the Young um, Working Catholics organization oh, called a, again? Oh, young,
2: young Catholic Professionals. There yes, we we, go. we have a new chapter in Los Angeles. So uh, come check us out. Uh, check it out on Facebook, uh, Young Catholic Professionals Los Angeles.
1: So you can find Father Tim online at Father Tim Grumbach. And if you head over to the Radio Trending page, you can find all the episodes. Just head over to that guest page. And he has done quite a number of episodes here with us talking about everything from, Um, Witchcraft, demonology, I mean, to the Catholic Church's teaching on marriage, you name it, we have covered it. Father Tim and I today, though, are going to be talking about this idea of Christianity and why does it matter what happens when we lose it in the culture people such as Richard Dawkins have in fact backtracked on their hatred for Christianity as they've seen what has happened to the culture we also have the former NBA champ Lamar Odom telling all about his addiction to suicide and how it, suicide sorry his addiction to porn and how it was more difficult to quit than his drug addiction
2: mm-hmm. yeah we're looking at the way that Christ wants to re- in all of our hearts. We just celebrated Christ the King. And if Christ is really king of the universe as the liturgy names him and gives him that great big title, he wants to be king of everything and king of our hearts. And so we'll be looking on this episode on the ways that uh, the culture has let go of the kingship of Christ and the way that the culture is falling apart because of that.
1: So first off is the topic of Christianity in France. Some of you may know of the major secularization that has been occurring in France. And I'll argue that's part of the main reason for so many of the protests that have been going on there. People, especially young people, have been fed a lie and they're missing a fundamental part of who they are. But there's a story that came out of a misinterpretation of the already overly secularized law there that targeted a 70-year-old retired nun when she applied for a publicly funded retirement home, telling her via a letter, and we'll get into some of the letter a little later on, that she would not be allowed to live in the home unless she ditched her habit, essentially. Hmm. So she couldn't wear any religious attire because it's a private matter, and they really wanted to allow people to, quote, keep the serenity mm-hmm. there in the retirement home.
2: Yeah. This state policy of secularism, uh, laïcité, which came out of the French revolution. And it's, it's calling to mind for me, that great story of the Carmelite nuns who were executed publicly during the reign of terror, uh, right at the beginning of the French revolution. And these sisters were brought forward to the guillotine one by one, and they looked to their superior and asked for permission to be executed. And so that their act of, um, of having been murdered, executed publicly by the state would be an act of obedience to their superior. And so this act of secularism, this policy, which was misunderstood in this case is may have been misunderstood what the government wanted now, not intending to uh, sacrifice the lives of these r- religious sisters, uh, to the cult of the government or whatnot, but still there is somebody in this situation who thought that this is what it meant and there's still somebody an individual and so we can't pass it off as well the government did this the prevailing worldview did this but individuals are doing this to individuals
1: well and if you know anyone who lives in france they will be some of the first to tell you that there has been a major secularization in france and really this targeting in many ways of christianity and no one's talking about the fact that day in and day out the most holy places there in france continue to be targeted destroyed attacked religious art some of the most beautiful and historical churches and again i don't think we'll ever know but even questions about what really happened to notre dame Mm -hmm. have always lingered in the air
2: Yeah. And uh, priests are being attacked and killed in many cases that are really not making it out to the major media as well. So looking at it as as more than just a government policy of, of secularization, but also this is taking the lives of people, maybe not as such great a scale as the reign of terror, but it's still happening. And it's what individuals are doing to individuals because of a government policy.
1: You know, I have a question, though, as I'm looking at this story about the nun in France, 70 years old just wants to retire, is told she can't wear her habit. So how the story goes, a local parish ends up paying for her to have her own separate apartment. In the meantime, this letter has been made public and even the mayor, and I may butcher the name, the mayor of Vassoul in that area where she was looking to live in the retirement home, ended up apologizing, saying that this was wrongly applying the secularization of the law there in France, But what's interesting to me is when I read parts of the letter telling the nun why she couldn't wear her habit, I think that some of these reasons are kind of in each of us in small ways. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at it, one of it, it says that basically it's ostentatious to wear this habit belonging to a religious community because essentially it's going to impact everyone's serenity. Mm-hmm. And I think about that. When are there times when we're not willing to bring up in any way our Christianity, maybe we're not even willing to pray in public because we don't want to throw off other people's serenity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as if Christianity were offensive.
2: Right, right. Uh, how are we going to distract the society with Jesus? I mean, that's something we were called, to, we are called to do in the first place is to uh, disrupt this. It's not so much a serenity as it's a distraction and a numbing that the society every single person has God built into them, has this, this hole in their heart, right? That God, that God shaped hole in the heart is that, you know, and more eloquently put is from St. Augustine is that our heart is restless until it rests in thee, O oh God, that you created us for yourself. And so that means that there's not a single person in our society that's not longing for God, but finding ways to distract and numb and calling it serenity. Uh, it's a distortion of the silence that uh, the silent love that God lives within so we're called to distract them from that called to um, call people to greater things we were born for greater things you know this is calling to mind for me something that happened actually just this last week in my parish was um uh, in the middle of mass uh, about 8 to 10 young men college aged men came in and uh, started drinking beer and filming themselves
1: during mass during mass wow. you know
2: during the consecration even so every time i would lift up the chalice they'd take a, a they'd be shotgunning their beers and um you know, I didn't know what was happening during mass. I just figured, you know, we get a lot of visitors. We have a beautiful church in the heart of Culver city in Los Angeles. Sony studios is right across the street. Lots of you know tourists, people coming to see what the Catholics are up to. And, and we have a lot of homeless in our church as well. And so, you know, I've seen some interesting things, heard some interesting things, but when I heard the, the pop of what I thought was a soda can, I'm like, that's one of the weirder sounds I've ever heard in a church. And so I just chalked it up to maybe somebody doesn't know they're not supposed to be drinking in church. And, uh, but then one of my parishioners started getting into an argument with these young men and I'm like, okay, well, this is strange, but it, um, it turns out that they were, they were drinking alcohol. They were filming themselves because it was something that had made its way onto Twitter recently, encouraging young men to go into churches and film themselves drinking alcohol. You know, yeah. Very manly, right? You know, I think that's the height of male passivity, honestly is your heart is created for worship and to distract yourselves from that for the sake of um, attention on social media for the 20 seconds that you'll get it. Well, anyways, you know, this is a distraction to us. And how are we being called to distract these young men from their desire for attention and to say, you don't have to leave. You just can't do that in here because we want you here with us to do what your hearts were made to do. And so our society is, There's not a single person that's not created for worship of the living God. And yet this secularization of the culture is telling us, you know, worship is something that needs to be disrupted. Something that, you know, we can get attention by being a distraction and it's, it's infantile and it's immature and we need to be calling our men to greater things and to be calling individuals within a society that is secularizing itself to recognize, no, your hearts were made for this. Your hearts were made for this worship and I'm really struck by this one line that was in this letter telling this religious sister that she couldn't wear her, her, uh, her habit in this retirement home is religion is a private matter and must remain. So, you know, I I, want to give the words of uh, Flannery O'Connor when talking about the Eucharist is that if it was just a symbol, then to hell with it, you know, if, if religion is just meant for me and, and it must remain so well to hell with it. Cause that's not religion. Religion binds us to one another, not hides us from one another.
1: It calls for a conversion of heart. That's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Father Tim, I want to come back to the story you just told <laughs> about the disruption during mass, because this all ties in when we say that <clears throat> God is not a big deal. When Christianity isn't a big deal, life becomes boring even though we think it becomes exciting there's freedom and liberation do whatever you want we lose our sense of conviction our sense of uh consciousness and even our conscience at the same time and i think of these young men who are challenged on twitter to go and drink beer in the middle of mass uh they think it's not a big deal because they think god isn't a big deal they don't even realize that it's just impolite and rude to begin with i mean we've lost our common sense and it makes me think of part of what we're going to discuss with richard dawkins And maybe we'll bring that up a little bit now about how he used to be so anti-Christianity and that, you know, you didn't need Christianity for morality. You needed, didn't need the idea of God watching you, but now he's kind of going back on that and thinking maybe it is helpful for people to think that God is watching them in order for them to behave and be respectful and have some level of morality and culture today.
2: Mm -hmm. And he has been in discussion with other atheists who aren't as uh, (laughs) anti-theist as he is. And they would uh, point to, you know, there are are optimistic uh, elements to to religion and to faith that can do good things for the culture. But um, like you said just a a few moments ago that we have to recognize the way that these things are in us as well. Yeah. Is that, you know... um, you know, these people are trying to hide their religion or force others to hide their religion. What are the ways that I do that?
1: Well, yes. in yeah. that quote you brought up, religion is a private matter yeah. must remain. So they told a nun this, you can't wear yeah. your habit. Religion's private. In it must remain so how many people do we know I mean this is one thing that's always been so fascinating to Mm -hmm. me I end up having a lot of conversations with them traveling on the airplanes maybe it's because I don't plug in and put headphones in and I say hello to people next to me but I run into Catholics fallen away Catholics to quote them sometimes recovering Catholics as they call themselves all the time and I find it interesting because a lot of the time the Catholics even once they know I'm Catholic are hesitant to share that they themselves are Catholic Mm -hmm there's this discomfort and part of me wonders are they afraid of being judged are they wondering well, what kind of Catholic are you
2: we don't have time for that (laughs) you know
1: what is it they don't wear it on their sleeve and my husband always teases me because I always somehow end up figuring out who is and is not Catholic around me by just kind of asking questions or talking about things but I think we're so often afraid to share our religion we're uncomfortable why is that
2: yeah I I don't always share my Catholicism well, my Christianity well, but I'm being convinced more and more every day, convicted of it. Even that I'm not Catholic. I'm alive. I I breathe. That's what it means for me to be Catholic. I have to breathe this stuff. This has to be, you know, I don't have my own breath anymore. I don't have my own heartbeat anymore. These aren't my hands anymore. This isn't my voice anymore. It belongs completely to Christ. And so I don't have time to worry about what other people are thinking. If I'm praying my rosary while I'm walking down the street, I don't have time to worry about what people are thinking when I'm making the sign of the cross and blessing food at, at, you know, before a meal at a restaurant, I just don't have time for this uh, to be concerned and worried that they think I'm weird for this. You know, this, this is who I am. This is who I'm called to be. And you know, being a witness to Christ is that simple. And it begins there. But then, you know, people are going to have questions that we don't have answers for, but how are we going to witness in the midst of a society where we just don't have time anymore to hide our Christianity?
1: I was speaking at John Paul, the great Catholic university this weekend, and I was talking to the girls about how we focus so much on productivity Mm -hmm. and essentially what we do rather than who we are. Mm -hmm. And... It's not what you do that gives you value. It's who you are. But part of who we are is to be Catholic. And so I like how you said, I'm too busy to care if people care, if I'm praying my rosary, blessing my food or whatever it might be. And I think that points back to who we are to live and breathe is Catholic. And I love it because this nun essentially said, no way. I'm not moving into this publicly funded retirement home in I'm not ditching my habit. Are we willing to say no way when we're confronted, even with a TV show that mm-hmm. is problematic and has nudity? are we willing to say no way when we're invited by a friend, family member, whatever it might do be to engage in things that we should not be engaging in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And to know what's happening in our hearts while we're doing that is if, um, if we're afraid to express our Christianity in some way, again, that, that we're alive, that we breathe Christianity, Christ, um, One of my first reactions and the reaction of so many people over social media to what happened in my church just this, you know, just last week where these young men came in uh, drinking and filming themselves was, you know, to be angry and upset. You know, this is, this is a desecration of the Eucharist. Right. To mock the Eucharist while the chalice is being lifted up at the moment of consecration. Um, during communion time to be drinking your alcohol in mockery of those receiving the blood of Christ. That's that's a desecration. And it deserves our, our outrage in a sense. But before any outrage is expressed, I was forced to look in and see the ways that I don't love Jesus in the Eucharist as well as I need to. And uh, there's never going to be a time where I love it, Jesus in the Eucharist as much as I need to. But that needs to be our first reaction. And looking at Twitter, um, perhaps it wasn't People's first reaction it was like, "I would have kick them out of the church," or "We need we need people carrying guns in church." I'm like, "These guys were drinking beer, okay?" <laughs> um, uh, although some of my, yeah, although you know, um, we have a school on campus, uh, we have uh, you know, real concerns about keeping our children safe. Uh, we have um, you know parishioners who saw you know eight to ten young men walk into church and sit in different parts of the church
1: terrified some people. Yeah.
2: And, and with cameras under their shirts, that look like, are those guns, you know? Right. And so, um, that maybe they knew what they were doing, but we did not. And it was, you know, it's illegal to film, uh, without permission in our church anyways, but to have a situation like that, a lot of people on social media, their first instinct was <clears throat> I would have kicked them out. You know, where are our Knights of Columbus to kick them out, you know? <laughs> and it was almost like violence was their first instinct. You know? But our first instinct needs to be: they are um, they, they are uh, mocking the Eucharist. Yeah. How do I do that? By the way, I live. How, I mean, yeah. Well,
1: and the question is, what comes next after this? You're listening to Trending with Timory, That's Father Tim Grumbach, and I think that's my question. You know, I'm my heart is broken for these young men who think this is mm-hmm. okay and just coming in and disrupt Mass. But if they're willing to do this, what else? are they willing to do? What will be the next uh, step? I mean, we have priests yeah. in Mexico and other parts of the country who are literally being murdered. And where has the respect gone for what is sacred?
2: Right. And we just on Saturday, right before the solemnity of Christ, the King was the celebration of the feast day of, of blessed Miguel Agustin Pro who is a, a Jesuit priest during the Mexican revolution, the Cristeros uh, war in Mexico during the 1920s. And he was uh, a priest who was, from Mexico ordained in Europe and came back to Mexico at the height of the anti-Catholic uh, um, war of um, soldiers coming into churches and killing people just for worshiping in a Catholic church, of priests being lined up. You know There are pictures, you can Google these things, pictures of priests being lined up outside of their churches, full vestments, hands folded in prayer and being shot right there on the spot. Um, Blessed Miguel Pro is most well known because of the pictures of his own execution that were um, posted by the government in the newspaper the next day to frighten Catholics. Well, he had his arms outstretched as a cross with Viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King on his lips. Um, He had blessed his executioners before they shot him. You know, this is the authority, the kingly authority and responsibility of a Catholic man, of a priest, Um, doing what Christ did on the cross, blessing the, the repentant thief. Um, Blessed Miguel Pro was caught because he was going from house to house, offering the sacraments, you know, and now young men come into our churches and mock the Eucharist by drinking beer and filming it. And there's word also, I'm not going to give their names, their, their, uh, their Twitter accounts, their websites. That's the whole point is to give them this, this attention, but it, it seems that we need to need to be careful as priests and as parishioners, seeing if this is happening to handle it gracefully. Um, but also with the responsibility and the authority we have as baptized Christians, um, they, they're attempting to go into confessionals and film, uh, fake confessions with, uh, with the priests. And so just something we need to be aware of and, uh, to call out, call it out as the immaturity, um, the, the diabolic ac- activity that it is that uh, again, the devil cannot create. He cannot be praised because to praise something truly is to um, share in the creative act of God. And, um, you know, we, we have a tremendous authority and responsibility as Christians to call this out and um, to you know, enter into these small martyrdoms like this, uh, this wonderful sister who had to endure this small embarrassment because of uh, this secularization that's happening in hearts.
1: The reality is, is that this is the culture we live in. And sometimes when we start to share stories, such as these, I know some people become disheartened. You know, they look at the state of the church, they look at the persecution, they look at the scandals. And my response is, Our Lord has chosen you and I now at this point in history to live. And He's asking, Who are you going to be? And then once you decide who you are going to be, that's going to determine how you are going to live, what you are going to do. And we're called to live joyfully. And I think that testimony such as Richard Dawkins in his latest writings talking about how, you know, when Christianity is being removed from the people, it's giving people the license to do really bad things, as he says. And this is the exact example. When we get rid of Christianity we lose all sense of common sense and respect for one another.
2: Yeah. He saw it as there's a you know, benevolent Christianity is on its way out and something more violent may, fi- may find its way into the vacuum. And that's his concern. And you know, um, as interesting as that is, I, I, it still misses the understanding of what Christianity truly is. It's not about being nice people and doing good things to one another. We it's, can all do you know, that without right, God, even. Right, right. Um, but even he mentions that, uh, you know, without God in his life, he still tries to be an honest man. And I'm like, well, how do you uh, mark honesty? How do you uh, compare it to dishonesty? How do you know that your honesty is building people up rather than tearing them down? Uh, how do you know that your honesty is just without God and without the, um, you know, without the commandments? Without uh, natural law without understanding that uh, we are created not just to be good people, nice people, but to be saints, to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's what we were made for every heart uh, being created for God and restless until it rests in him. Um, so his desire for a a Christianity that can hold things together because people are being nice to each other. I don't care. That's not good enough. We're not just made to be good people, to be nice to each other. We're made to be saints. We're made to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that uh, doesn't always mean we're just going to be nice people to each other.
1: That's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Timmery. I want to talk briefly about this article that came out talking about the four feminist lies that are making women miserable. The story came out through The Federalist. It was written by Suzanne Venker, who is a life coach, a relationship coach. And she talks about uh, in her books, things such as women can't have it all. You can't work full time and have children full time and do all of your hobbies full time. You can't have it all. Life doesn't work that way. We can't live based on pure pleasure, essentially. And so some of the things that she talks about, such as Uh, this ideology that women wish they hadn't been fed, such as women don't need men, and two, that men and women are the same and gender is just a social construct. I look at these and it goes against a very fundamental idea of Christianity, that there's a complementarity between male and female and that we are created with great worth, both as male and female. And sometimes when I hear this ideology that men and women are the same and that we don't need men, it's almost to say that We don't want men to be who they are. We don't even want them to exist. We don't want them to live.
2: Mm-hmm. And to say that women don't need men. And she references Emma Watson talking about herself as, you know, I don't see myself as single. I see myself as self-partnered and, uh, <laughs> and as, as, as laughable as that is, right? Um, well, we will hear very something very different as Christians uh, with the biblical understanding of the world. When someone says that they're referring to themselves as self-partnered rather than single, is that we believe that a, a person in the single state of life can still offer themselves to others but to refer to oneself as self-partnered is to uh, say it, even if she doesn't mean it, but the the language I hear is that she is saying, I don't really need anyone else right now, that God's words to the first man, that it is not good for man to be alone, does not apply to her or to other people that we would be perfectly okay without others, but we were created um, as the only part of creation for our own sake, and we will only find ourselves by giving
0: ourselves away. timmery will be right back send her a tweet at timmery that's t-i-m-m-e-r-i-e you're listening to trending with timmery where morality and culture meet offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics
1: Thank you for being with us. Father Tim Grumbach is in studio with me. I was taking up the topic of these four feminist lies that are making women miserable. It was written about in The Federalist. We'll be sure to link to that episode on Twitter as well. But the first couple that we're talking about is how women don't need men and how men and women are the same and how gender is just a social construct. What's your initial reaction, Father Tim, as you're hearing these?
2: Well, that women don't need men. It could be put the other way as well, that men don't need women. But we know as Christians that uh, you know, not even just the how of creation, but the why of creation, that we are made for one another and that it's expressed in different ways uh, you know, in the, the sexuality and the gift that men and women make to each other as husband and wife, but also in in my state of life, the celibate state of life is that, you know, I I need to be able to have male friends and female friends, and to find my intimacy in the healthy ways and in healthy relationships. And that we cannot know ourselves without seeing ourselves in in the light of Christ, but also in the light of our relationships with one another.
1: Well, we have to keep coming back to this idea that we are oriented toward the other. Part of what we desire so much in a, relationship with someone of the opposite sex is what is other in that other person. And so this whole idea of quote unquote self partnering goes against the fundamental idea of who we are as male and female by our very creation. We are created to be a gift of self. And you know, this is going back to the idea of theology of the body and what the church has always taught. You see Adam and Eve alone in the garden naked and they realize on a basic material biological level that the bodies are made for one another, like a key in a lock, it reveals not just a material reality, but a spiritual reality. And so this complementarity of persons, not just on a sexual level, but on the level of complementarity of who we are, of self giving, this is part of who we are. And women are writing over and over again to the author of this book, who's a relationship coach and has been writing on feminism for over 20 years saying, I'm so unhappy. I wish someone had told me these things sooner. And so some of the other things that she talks about is how peop- women wish people told them didn't, that women didn't buy the lie that their biological clock isn't real.
2: Right. And that leads to the fourth point is that a career is more m- meaningful than marriage and children because that thought, that fourth thought will lead uh, women to think that, you know, that biological clock isn't real so that I can put my career ahead of anything else and then come back to it later. But let's be honest, is some, some women do find themselves in uh, situations in their life where it's not because of career, it's not for a lack of, of you know, hoping and praying and, and, and seeking healthy relationships. Uh, to find uh, somebody that they could be married to and share their life with. But that some women are finding themselves, and this is because of a, a, a lack of, really, uh, men with integrity and uh, men that one could spend one's life with, and that there are a lot of situations that are leading women to, uh, uh, to hope that the biological clock isn't real. I mean, I don't mean to speak for women, but uh, with a lot of the, the women that I, I speak with at the parish and work with at the parish is that, you know, this is a real situation in which men are to blame at times, but also the culture trying to convince them of these lies.
1: The reality is, is that women, if you are listening to this and you have maybe never even thought about it, the reality is, is that our ability to conceive children has a limited shelf life and not that this should scare you into getting married or scare you into having children, But we're being told a lie. And one of those lies is now people are saying, well, just freeze your eggs and have children later. I mean, people are saying, well, I'll just do IVF. The chances of IVF working for a woman in her 40s, for a woman's eggs in her 40s, are very, very, very low. Not to mention the offenses against marriage, against the creation of life, against um, destroying life. We could go on and on. But it's not effective. And women are suffering because of this. And it comes back to this idea, and I was speaking at university recently discussing this about how the crisis for women today is this idea of productivity versus femininity, that we're supposed to be productive at all costs, pump out the career, pump out the education, be a cog in the machine of whatever workplace you are in. But who you are as a woman does not matter. And we're being fed this line accepting it. Mm
2: -hmm and the the negativity surrounding the idea of a mother who wants to stay at home and to raise her children and how that's even been described as well that's your occupation that's your career even then we need to be careful about equating the tremendous gift of a mother being able to be their presence to her children to just another career it's a vocation it's so much more but also on the other hand to see that you know there are mothers who do need to uh, enter into the workforce to care for their family we should be trying to find ways where that doesn't have to happen but uh, it's really dangerous to get into the language that is, some people are using this in their discussion that for a woman to go into the workforce is a sinful thing, but that recognizing, again, it's not just about what women can do, but it's about who they are. That, that great quote from uh, St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross is that the world doesn't need what women can do. It needs who women
1: are love that quote i want to change pace here there's so much more we could say on these four areas having to do with feminism but there's a really neat story that's come out of the philippines you're listening to trending with tim Marie with me today is father tim grumbach a diocese in the philippines has decided that Uh, The bishop there has in fact decided, it's Bishop Preciosa Cantillus, I might have butchered his name, of the Diocese of Massim, who has decided that all masses beginning in the liturgical year coming up, starting December 1st, that they should all be ad orientum, meaning that the priest faces in the same direction as a congregation is facing. He's the intermediary in offering the sacrifice for the people. um, And all are oriented ideally if the tabernacle is there toward Christ and toward the tabernacle and toward the cross. Father Tim Grumbach, so much to say here for the perspective of a mass attendee, but also what's Mm -hmm. your take as a priest?
2: Right. I was having a conversation with some other priests recently about this, and some of the language was used that um, there was a concern that some priests would turn around the altar and turn their backs to the people. Now, I know they meant ad orientum, (laughs) <laughs> but just the language that was being used that uh, the priest is turning his back to the people in Ad Orientum worship, worship, in which the priest faces the same direction as the people. You know, there are a lot of lighthearted ways to speak of this, but that—that that is a language that was thrown out a long time ago, that the priest turns his back on the people. The proper understanding is that we are all facing God together. One person put it in this perspective. If I've got a pilot at the front of my plane, I would rather he be facing the same direction as me, not turned back towards me. Right. Other lighthearted ways to speak of it is that when a, a parishioner would come up to a priest who is celebrating Mass at Orientum and say, Father, why did you turn your back on on me? Why didn't you face me? And the response of the priest is, because I wasn't talking to you. Um, so <laughs> that, uh, is, yeah. that
1: is a good, very blunt, but clear summary right, right, right there. Yeah.
2: I would have a tough time telling a parishioner that, <laughs> but, uh, but that's a reality of it is that when worship became focused so much on the dialogue between priest and people that uh, I've noticed it. I, I can't judge the priest's hearts on, in this matter, but I've heard the way that they will speak and pray the Eucharistic prayer. And it will sound like they're talking to the people when so much of the Eucharistic prayer, there's only a, a, few, a couple of small parts in which it is a dialogue with the people that so much of the Eucharistic prayer is addressed to God. Yeah. and. You know, we are taught to be effective public speakers in preaching and when we're proclaiming the gospel, you know, look up every couple of lines, make eye contact, pick a spot in the church to look at, and all these seemingly effective manners of communication with public speaking that when we're praying the mass, praying the Eucharistic prayer, the temptation is to fall back into these effective methods of public communication. During the Eucharistic prayer, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to God. And so when I offer Mass, only very, very rarely offer Mass at Orientum, and never really at my parish. I treat it as if I am offering it at Orientum. When I'm offering the Eucharistic prayer, I do not look at the people. I look up or I look down at the book. I look at what's in front of me because I'm I'm talking to God, not to the people. I'm talking to God for the people. And so to enter into ad Orientum worship is not a matter of me turning my back on the people. It's a matter of gaining the right perspective and the right focus and reorienting our worship for which we were created to God. And so that we're all facing the same direction. And this very much fits in with everything else that we talk about on this show is about reorienting ourselves towards making our our lives an act of worship, not just during the greatest act of worship in the Holy Eucharist, but in every part of our lives, every altar that we encounter in our lives where we can be made a sacrifice and a self gift is how do we orient ourselves in the act of liturgical worship so as to orient ourselves in service to one another. And that is one of the real implications and the desires of this diocese in the Philippines is to reorient the act of worship so as to reorient ourselves in the act of service to one another. This is something that's also happening here in some dioceses here in the United States. Um, not quite as dramatically as uh, in the Philippines, that, that diocese where they hope starting December 1st to have every Mass, I believe it yes. is, uh, offered at Orientum. In the, uh, the Diocese of Gallup in New Mexico, uh, Bishop Wall, during this last year, gave a pastoral letter to his diocese, asking on you know certain occasions at the cathedral, they'll be offering Mass at Orientum. And for these same reasons, so that we can face the same direction, reorient our worship so as to reorient our service towards the Lord, not just for the sake of being fair to people, but as offering ourselves as a sacrifice and a self gift along with Jesus Christ, who is the true and eternal high priest.
1: That's Father Tim Grumbach talking about this major story of Adorienta Masses. One of the things I would point to is that the history of the church Mass has always been celebrated at Orientum. It's only been about the last 60 years or so that we have changed the way liturgy has been celebrated. One of the things that I love in looking at the letter of the bishop in the diocese there in the Philippines, Bishop Preciosa Cantillas, is he talks about how, uh, paraphrasing him, how the priest is meant to lead the people and not be at the center of of essentially the mass itself. A major thank you and shout out to our sponsors. Solidarity HealthShare is simple to help pay for affordable, quality health care. They enable the community to share in each other's eligible medical expenses. You choose a doctor that you want to see. Even integrative and alternative medical treatments are eligible. Solidarity HealthShare helps pay for NAPRO technology and costs associated with natural family planning. Solidarity HealthShare is dedicated to both faith and your health care information is available at solidarityhealthshare.org that's solidarityhealthshare.org
0: you can listen to more of trending via the podcast on itunes or the iHeartRadio app where you can share your favorite episodes you're listening to trending with Timory. Father Tim
1: Grumbach is in the studio with me. Apparently, we have lots to say about this ad Orientum mass that is now the law of the land in one of the dioceses in the Philippines. Ad-Oriented Mass is where the priest faces in the same direction that the people are facing, not toward them. In some of the statements, it talks about how the priest is meant to lead the people, not be at the center of worship themselves. Before we came up on the break, I was talking about how it can be distracting for me. And for example, when the priest is boring down on the congregation, staring at who's there, and I'm thinking, yes, Father, I'm here. I'm here, like, checking to see Who's there? Or sometimes um, staring to see—is everyone saying the response? Is everyone singing? And I get it because I think sometimes the priests themselves struggle to see: Are my people participating and tuning in and even caring about what are being said? And if they don't see it, they themselves struggle in offering the mass, and then we ourselves struggle in the way the priest is or isn't engaged in the liturgy. And so the priest. In my eyes, in in so much of the history of the church and its documents about how mass is celebrated it points about how this is us reorienting ourselves and keeping our eyes on Christ, who is our goal. We are called to be conformed to the image of Christ and this is reorienting back to Christ in our liturgical worship. Right.
2: And one of the most basic elements of the theology of the Eucharist of this the, is that it is a an unbloody representation of the sacrifice of Calvary. That Jesus's sacrifice on the cross is not redone or done again, but that we are being transported into that moment in the Holy Eucharist. And so what the church has called for for some time now is this full and active participation of everybody present in the Eucharist, that everybody doesn't just attend a mass, but they assist at a mass. I love that that language was used. It's unfortunate that it's no longer used, that people assist at a mass, meaning that it is a full participation, not in the sense of they have to be up at the altar in in Albs uh, performing ministries, but for people to attend at the mass is to assist by offering their prayers along with the priest.
1: I just want to comment on that real quick, Father Tim, because sometimes we say, well, this is how we used to say Mm -hmm. things in the church, just because the church isn't using the same terminology to discuss the liturgy, to discuss teaching, it's using current language, but the meaning hasn't changed. And sometimes because we don't read more of the history of the church documents, sometimes that meaning can be lost on us because Mm -hmm. we're trying to be so current in how we discuss things.
2: Right. Right. And so how, how do we actively participate? How do we assist in the mass? How do you using this different language? How are we present at the sacrifice of Calvary
1: as the laity,
2: as the laity alongside with the priest offering ourselves, letting the priest offer hearts on that altar in the Eucharist alongside Christ on the cross. Well, Cardinal Sarah suggested that we look at it like, Mary Magdalene and St. John at the foot of the cross. They were not called to minister in any sense, but to be present and offer them their whole selves along with Jesus on the cross. And who did that better than Mary herself is uniting her sufferings of watching her, her only son die on the cross before her. And that's how we can understand her in a sense as a, a co-redemptrix of offering her, her sufferings along with Jesus on the cross that her, her birth pangs that she was, you know, that the church fathers will say she was relieved from at the moment of Jesus's birth in Bethlehem, that they were experienced in giving birth to the church with Christ at the cross. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, Mary, the mother of God, Mary Magdalene and St. John were participating in the sacrifice on Calvary in silence and in offering their whole hearts to what was happening before them. And that's the kind of spiritual communion, sacrifice and participation, we are invited into in every Eucharist we assist at.
1: I love that. And I think that that, this ad orientum, think about it, to reorient ourselves, right? Orient ourselves toward Christ, orient ourselves toward the tabernacle is a profound moment in the liturgy for us to say the whole purpose of the Sunday celebration, or if you go to mass, that beginning of the day or end cap of the day of going to mass, that we are orienting, our whole life on christ without question that we're looking toward him and i think that this is the power of the ad mass the power of the history of the church and how mass has been celebrated for centuries and it points back to the fact that many many people are turning in droves toward the Latin mass and, or even more traditional celebration of the mass with, you know, the Latin hymns, with the smells and the bells, you know, all of these elements that we're finding the young people who are staying in the church are craving. And I heard Mm -hmm. it put this way by one young person. They went to a Latin mass where the the mass was celebrated ad orientum and they said, I feel like I've been gypped my whole life. Mm -hmm. They had stopped attending church and they come back and they see the beauty and the reverence in the solid teaching within the mass. And they say this is what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And I missed.
2: Right. A priest friend of mine used the language of this was my inheritance and it was kept away from me. Yeah. And um, I, I think that's, it's fair to say it that way. But as a parish priest in Los Angeles, where um, every mass that I celebrate is facing the people, it is the Novus Ordo. I honestly have not learned how to celebrate the Latin mass though. I have a great desire to, I'm hoping for the time to be able to study that because it is a great pastoral need here in Los Angeles. I can say that, uh, but where I've been called to be right now is to be at a mass that celebrates Novus Ordo very much in English and in Spanish and to face the people while I offer the sacrifice of the mass. Uh, it is the same sacrifice of the mass uh, expressed differently. It's not a different rite from the Latin mass. It is a different form. Right. And that is what I've been called to do. And I have a great desire to you know, experience the other form as well. But when we speak of this, um, you know, there was a bit of a controversy on the Catholic Twitter uh, <laughs> over the last few days of some footage coming from uh, you know, NCYC, which is a gigantic youth conference in Indianapolis that happens. Uh, I think it's every year or every other year. And uh, this year, there was some footage that came from the end of the Eucharist, which had like you know ten or fifteen bishops present and like hundreds of priests or something like that. And it was just this this wonderful experience of a mass being uh, offered in a football stadium. And you know the footage that made it onto the internet was of twenty thousand teenagers waving like their cell phone lights or something like that during the final song. And there are some elements in the social media. The Catholic social media world that saw this as so offensive and irreverent and though waving cell phone lights during the closing song of a liturgy is not exactly my idea of reverence but it's where those teens were at and it has to be somewhere that we start with them you know well, yeah. yeah we would love to bring them into greater reverence where they could actually uh, appreciate love and respect the latin mass but you take some of the teens that I work with them and, and drop them into a Latin mass. They're
1: not there yet. They're
2: not there yet. And they're going to be as, probably going to be as disrespectful during that time as they are during you know the, the regular masses that I that I offer.
1: And I think one thing though, that we can learn from the Ad Orient to mass that is being celebrated now in one full diocese in the Philippines is that where are we orienting our hearts mm-hmm. when we go to the liturgy? So irregardless of what mass you're attending, Are you truly orienting yourself toward Christ in the sacrifice of the altar at the beginning of the mass? Are you truly seeking repentance and asking for the worthiness to receive our Lord? Are you truly present and learning about Christ during the readings of the Old Testament and the New Testament the Gospel. I think that that's the biggest takeaway is where are we orienting our minds, our bodies, our hearts, our souls. So in the physical orientation of everyone, right, toward Christ facing the East, is one symbol in not to mass, but how can we live that symbol in our own liturgical worship wherever we
2: are? Right. Right. Yeah. The liturgical East. And this is a, a term that maybe has to be defined as well, is that there was tremendous expectation of Christ's coming again in glory. And there still is. And if we forget about that expectation, we've forgotten what it means to be Christian. You know, I've been telling my people at the parish, let's live every day as if we expect Jesus to come back tomorrow. And people will mock us when Jesus doesn't come back, but we'll be saying the joke's on you. We're the ones being transformed by our expectation. And so with, with that expectation, we look to the East, liturgically look to the East, waiting for the sun to rise in both of its meanings, the sun in the sky to rise up and give light to the day, uh, the son of God to rise up and give life uh, and, and light to humanity. And so this liturgical East is something that builds an expectation into us and changes the way that we live outside of the liturgy as well. And so there's a a hope that's built into that turning the same direction and and looking towards the East. You know, it even makes me think of this delightful tradition in the ancient tradition in the Catholic church of the way that people are buried. Uh, At least, you know, I don't know if they still do this, honestly, but they should because it would be burying a, a Catholic person so that you know, on the day of the resurrection, they will stand up and be looking to the East. But the tradition also is that a, a priest is buried facing the other direction so that he will stand up and look back towards the people that are awaiting Christ's coming from the East. Uh, and they will either thank us for the work that we've done, or they will convict us and of God. our selfishness and our, um, our lack of uh, charity and, and uh, pastoral, love for them and so you know the the ancient traditions of the church remind us that we are people of expectation and hope looking towards the east waiting for jesus to come back every day
1: and this is a great reminder as we prepare or are in the midst of the advent season it's a preparation for christ in his second coming it's a reliving of his coming in not just at bethlehem to jesus to Joseph and Mary, but a coming every time to us in the Eucharistic celebration as well.
2: Yeah. And to not be afraid. Don't be afraid. If Jesus promises you the end of the world tomorrow, don't be afraid. It's literally the best thing that can happen for this world is for Jesus to come back now. We've been taught to be afraid of the end of the world. No, it is our greatest hope.
1: We're challenged to reorient ourselves toward Christ and the sacraments and the Eucharist and reconciliation. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can listen to more episodes or share this episode with someone this weekend by going to radiotrending.com and sharing the link.
0: This has been Trending with Timmery. To book her to speak or learn more about her guests, visit radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes.